This is the We Fish with Phoenix Boats podcast, built by anglers for anglers. Welcome everyone to the We Fish with Phoenix Boats podcast. I'm your host, Tim Trockenbrot. With me as always is my co-host, Brian Travis. And today in studio, two-time All-American, three-time Classic Qualifier, the greatest weekend angler in many's minds, Jeff Coble. How's it going, guys? Good. Not to, not to mention the uh, first ever Canadian Open non-Canadian winner. Yeah, you know, I think that's probably correct because I think about everybody that had won it even back back in the day, uh, I think it had been Canadians. D- does your weight record on that tournament still hold? Oh, no. I think the smallmouth have gotten bigger up there since I did that. I think they've steadily gained pace up there. At that time, you know, I, I had a seven-pounder one day which is obviously the biggest smallmouth I've ever caught, period, probably forever. But uh, that's getting a little more routine up there now. Is it? So I do have one question before we get way into this deal. So you won 2001 All-American. 2001 went back-to-back, won All-American. My, my memory serves me says you won it on the same crankbait. Is that accurate? Well, I, you know, actually, it, uh, I kind of got lucky on that deal. Uh, it was back-to-back years. It was, in 2000 was the last – uh, Red Man All-American where you had press observers and then 2001 was the first uh, All-American the BFL All-American where you had then had co- uh, co-anglers in the boats before you know we had drawn each other and fished against each other uh, that was the first one that they did that uh, but uh, I, I, lucky, luckily for me it was on the same lake same time of the year two years in a row so that 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 had to be a big factor in me winning two back to back. Now another thing in that, <clears throat> you know, give a little backstory for some people that may not know. Uh, recently here at Phoenix, we dug up a VHS of that tournament and uh, converted it to DVD, so we got to watch it on a big screen. And one big question that's been going around the office and everything is, do you still crank sitting down with a life jacket on? Uh, well, uh, fortunately now I have those uh, non-traditional uh, life jackets where they. The, the inflatable life jackets are yep. a little more comfortable to sit down and crank with. But, yes, indeed, I do I do still sit down to throw a crankbait. So that's part of your technique is to sit down cranking? Yeah, well, it, you're just a little more comfortable. You're right where you can keep your foot on the trolling motor pedal all the time. You're closer to your electronics. And there's no advantage to standing up. Hurl, you know, you see some of those guys up there like they're surf fishing. They, they tend to uh, – they'll have shoulder surgery in a couple of years usually. Now, you and uh, David Wright go way back. That was your team partner, still is your team partner? Oh, yeah, 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 when when he can put up with me anyway. <laughs> I've read somewhere that you guys combined, and this must have been a couple of years ago, for $1.4 million in I, earnings. Yeah, you know, that was kind of an estimate. Between uh, 1996 uh, is when we started fishing together, and 2008 is when we kind of compiled all that, and, and a lot of it, some of it we won combined, and then, like, he would win a regional or a BFL, and I would win a regional or BFL. Some of it was separate. Well, we still split all of our money, so it didn't really matter. But, yeah, I would have to say it was close to $1.4 million. Now, tell us a little bit. Um, you guys are in the same kind of town and area. What is the Lexington Mafia? Well, uh, yeah, the Crankbait Mafia. Is, is that what it is, is kind of what that, yeah. Cleaned it up the, some? Yeah, the Carolina Crankbait Mafia. But, anyway... Uh, I kind of wasn't in that club. I kind of more started out traditional, trying to copy uh, 
Gary Klein, D. Thomas, and Jimmy Houston, you know, shallow mm-hmm. water, flipping spinnerbait, stuff like that. That's kind of the way I came along. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, he kind of took me under his wing. He was a, by far the best deep water fisherman in North Carolina. And uh, he didn't have a lot to do with just anybody, but he kind of took a liking to me. And he, he taught me a lot about that. And then, you know, he, he became friends with David Wright and Gerald Beck and and we all, you know, kind of, in fact, I think the first, the very first FLW $100,000 tournament at Car Lake, David Wright finished second in it. We all four were in the thing. Mm-hmm. And we had a four-way split on the money. You know, right. it, so that that was that was how close we were on that deal. We, we were, uh, I, of course, David won the most money, but uh, we all had a four-way split on that. Then, Gerald, I was kind of getting, kind of, getting out of fishing bass i'd fished the top 100 tour for one year and i could tell that that was going to be a more of a commitment that i was going to be able to make you know and still have a job so gerald was getting into it and i was getting out of it which kind of left david Wright without a team partner mm-hmm. and that's when he and i started fishing together and that's kind of the way that went and that was 1996 yes 96 tell us about that first all-american um we've seen the video of it we watched it i mean were you, did you know you had it? Did you feel like that was your tournament? Uh, not really. Uh, at that time, I'm not sure exactly the format now, but at that time you fished two days and then they made a cut to the top 10 or so and you threw your weight away and started over. So, you know, you, you couldn't, and there wasn't much of a lead to be, to build on that lake anyway. A 13 pound catch is the biggest catch I ever caught mm-hmm. out there. So you couldn't get a, a big lead anyway. It was always going to come down two ounces and i think the first the first one i won i beat keith green by like six ounces yeah no we remember watching that was the one we watched in here and i came up schooling several times and there's some brush piles that mysteriously moved around us. <laughs> yeah well <laughs> we've, we've, we've always been kind of notorious for that over the years but you can't help it uh, if a hook hangs up in one I you mean, know that like when 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 i qualified for that that thing i'd never heard of lake hamilton so i assumed that it was a fairly small like they didn't have a lot of tournaments and it was probably 7,500 acres something like that so David and I went out there uh but like Thanksgiving you know when, mm-hmm. in the fall and it just we were kind of lucky because every four or five years they would pull that lake down uh like nine feet which is m- more than their normal drawdown to kill you know some of the aquatic vegetation when we got there it was obvious you could see a lot of brush piles sticking out of the water that the crappy fishermen mm-hmm. had obviously put in the lake. So, and we didn't know if it would even work out there for bass, but that's kind of our forte. So we started hooking to brush piles and dragging them kind of where we thought they ought to be. And of course we, we were able, you know, one of our biggest success deals then won't work now. Anyway, we could line up on that brush, you know, triangulate the thing and hit it within three casts, mm-hmm. you know, it'd make notes and a notepad, different line, stuff like that uh no gps's and mapping and stuff like right that. right that back then so we we kind of dialed in on that as a way to do it and uh it just so happened that 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 turned out to be the deal uh the 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 key to probably me winning the tournament was i could fish 50 brush piles a day where you know everybody else would know where 10 were at mm-hmm. the most. i could i could it was just a numbers game i could keep hitting brush piles Till I hit one that had had a fish. How many casts per brush pile before you moved? 
Well, I wouldn't make, you know, I, I typically hit it two or three times with a crankbait and then throw a worm in it, and then I would be, be on. Be done. Yeah. Now, what do people need to realize about, uh, I mean, it, you hear all this time, I, well, I've sunk some Christmas trees, I got brush. I mean, but there's a difference between cane piles, good green brush piles. I mean, what do you, do you spend your time really deciphering the difference between well, two, or do you have one the, that works better? At, at least back then, let's talk at about that. At that time, I, nobody ever heard of cane piles, so that, mm -hmm. was, that wasn't an option. And, I, and I'm and i total opposite. I think, like a friend of mine, Bobby Padgett, that like you follow, he thinks the best brush pile is one you cut today that will be a fish in it tomorrow, you know, a green mm -hmm. brush pile. But I've always kind of liked them a little more seasoned, so uh, I, I, I've never done the the green brush, brush pile gig, uh, I, I just relied on, and, and in that case, there's no telling how many years those brush piles had been. Right. They were just strong enough for you to still move them. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and one key too, in that, like there is very little other cover in it. Right. Know, which is why I'm sure the fish school and stuff. But, uh, when you got a lake that doesn't have a lot of cover on it, uh, natural cover rocks and stumps and stuff like that, brush piles just seem to hold, hold more fish. Now you mentioned triangulate, and that's something that I don't think a lot of the newer guys or guys coming up have ever spent much time doing. Do you still do it today? Well, yeah, and you don't need to now. I mean, between these deadly accurate GPS uh, systems we have on our boats, and now you know you got like live scope, you can I can tell right, you know, because even then, you know, you kind of you'd have to know exactly which way to throw mm -hmm. to to uh, to hit a brush pile, but now you can just flash that. Uh, flash the uh, live scope by there and see right where the brush is and where to throw. Now explain to explain to the folks what is triangulating. I mean, well, you know, like for instance, and a lake like Lake Hamilton that has a lot of houses and development and stuff is a lot easier to, mm -hmm. to line stuff up on because when you if you try to use like you know in a lake like where I live, where there's not a lot of houses there, use two pine trees, you'll think, well, I got that, you know, I write that down, I. And then two days later, you'll come back and say, well, now, is that the pine tree? Mm. Or, you know, it, it's kind of confusing. But now, if you've got a flagpole by the end of a dock ladder or something like that, you, you know right where to throw Line it. Line up every time. And then you just need one to to know where, what distance to set your boat, you know. Mm -hmm. And that can be fairly flexible. It doesn't need to be as accurate. You can have a buoy lined up with a, you know, a dock or flagpole mm -hmm. or something like that to get you close as far as, as – uh, the distance you need to be from the brush. But now, like I say, it's not a, it's, I, that would have not happened now. I mean, I wouldn't have had all that to myself nowadays. Now, um, so you won the first one, got qualified, get to the second one. Did you have any added pressure being the returning champion? Well, you know, and a lot of people assumed that that, that the all American was like the Bassmasters classic in that you, uh, you were, Guaranteed to qualify for the net. You got a free pass next year. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. No, you American. had to work through it. You've always got to requalify. And it's really kind of an interesting story of how we actually requalified. You know, David and I split our money. And uh, that next year, th there was a, uh, I believe the regional was at Lake Gaston, which is the lake next to me. And uh, they had, at that time, they were having two wild card re mm -hmm. regionals. And I kind of at least thought I had inside information that maybe the wild card, since they were already at Gaston with their equipment, they would just leave it there and have the wild card at Bugs Island where I live. And I told David, I said, well, there's no use for me to continue 
and make the regional over there because we'll just split the money, you know, split the places up and possibly neither one of us win over there. Uh, I'll just drop out, keep my entry fees paid, mm-hmm. and hopefully the the wild card will be at Bugs Island. Well, that was a great plan, but the wild card was not at Bugs Island. Where was it? <laughs> in fact, the closest one was at uh, Old Hickory Lake in Tennessee, which mm. I, I'd never been to and really, wasn't really crazy about going to. <clears throat> and they had another one at, uh, at uh, Grand Lake in Oklahoma, which I had been to. And so I said, well, I'll, heck, I'll just drive further and go to Grand Lake. At least I'm familiar with it. And uh, so I did, and, and I got there, and that one had a lower turnout. I don't remember if there were 60 or 80 guys in it. Uh, but uh, I fit, that's, so I, I pitched that one. And in fact, they had some boat-on-boat draws, and I drew a boy uh, the second day that was in the top. You know, he was doing Sean Goodwin, and uh, a good, really good guy from out there. And... Uh, we uh, we both, you know, went to some fish that I had and we caught some and then went to a place that he had. You know, it's kind of shared water. We had, Actually, I think I finished second and he finished third or something. You know, we both qualified. Right. So uh, that was almost a catastrophe on that. So uh, I, it was just lucky that, that all that came around like it did and I was able to get back to Lake Hamilton. But this time, David had also qualified you know, from Gaston. So we both were qualifiers at the 2001 All-American. No, that's awesome. And um, I was reading a story after you'd done the All-Americans, you had some success on the Bassmaster Series, the Invitationals? Yeah, I started fishing. The, yeah, they were in, Invitationals then. Uh, and at that time, which was a little more to my liking, uh, they took the top three from each of the, the Invitational divisions to the Classic. And I finished second or third and, and and qualified for Lay Lake in Alabama. And that what year was that first one for you? I think it was to O two. O two. Yeah. So dang. You had a classic in O two, an All American in O one, and an All American in two thousand? Yeah. That's yeah. quite a heck of three years there. I was also uh the same deal. You and K V D interviewed each other <laughs> yeah. for an article for yeah. your second classic. Yeah, that was a Steve Bowman set up there. But they said, oh, Kevin Van Dam's the hottest angler right now, and Jeff Coble's the hottest weekend angler right now. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so they set you up right before the Classic to ask each other anything? Yeah, I think they had us a list of some crazy questions or whatever. It was you good. remember any of them? Uh, I don't remember many of well, them. Well, let's go down memory lane. <laughs> I've got them right here. KVD question one. Jeff, it's pretty well documented that you and David Wright have a partnership or a team for quite some time in this history of the sport of professional angling. I've seen almost all of those relationships go awry and break up. Do you think the in the future and as competitive as it's getting, you and David will go a similar path? Well, we didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, we still. But you know, we were uh, both of us were. It's been, he's 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 about ten years older than me, and uh, we were a little more settled and seasoned and had had individual accomplishments, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty equal actually, and uh, there was no envy on that so I think that that typically is what derails a lot of those 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 associations. I noticed now that you know it looks like the new kids on the elite series are starting to I've seen the bro series and stuff like that talked about. A lot of those guys are working together now it looks like mm-hmm. oh the court uh Johnson brothers um I actually marshaled with uh with Corey this year at Gunnersville and uh they do the same thing. I mean they split everything. They have a joint bank account. 
if one wins, the other one wins. I mean, they split it right down the middle. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure their dad probably pretty much insisted on that <laughs> <laughs> when they started. Those guys are great. I'm telling you, they're, they're the hottest. They're as hot as anybody in the country. I don't care what tour they're on. Well, I thought it was interesting when I was in the boat with Corey that they passed each other two or three times, and literally it was like, I mean, they're not twins, but they had this communication that no one else understood. They he said, did you go hit that spot, that spot, that spot? Yeah. And they knew exactly what they were talking about. And then when they were asking for baits, it, was, it wasn't even a question what color, what size. That's right. It just got thrown on the deck, and it was pretty impressive. Do you and David share that kind of well, yeah, communication you know, with and, each other? And, and a lot of – typically now, we, we don't fish as many individual tournaments against each other. But, yeah, if we ran across each other during the day, we would say, did you – you know, have you fished over there? Because there's no use of me mm. fishing behind him if I didn't have to. You know? Right. You know, and in fact, the second All American is kind of weird too. Uh, David was eligible for more bonus money than I was, so we kind of figured that he would take like the lower end of the lake, which I considered the best mm-hmm. with the biggest chance to to win. He take that end, and I'll take the other end, and then you know have a shot at more money anyway. And then uh, actually, uh, I think a buddy of Duke Jinkles blistered David Wright out of the back of the boat with a Carolina rig, and David didn't make the cut. Really? So that left me making the cut, and mm-hmm. then I had the whole lake to myself, you know. So that that's, that was another weird thing that happened that, you know, sometimes it's just meant to happen. You know? Right. Well, you've gone through plenty of wins to figure that out, though. Um, Jeff? Well, I was just going to say, we're talking about the classics now, so you had the three appearances. Uh, if my memory serves me, I think it was a, a 48th, a 41st, and a 16th place. 13th, I think. 13th place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. typically those classics, uh, I was not very good. <laughs> I, you know what? <laughs> Making it there puts you towards the top of my book, buddy. Uh, Tim and I have been joking about that. You may hear us a couple times on this podcast talking about the uh, the only way we get to the classic stage is sweeping the confetti. You know, and uh, so just to make it and be on that stage itself and fish with some of those guys, that's just something to be proud of for well, sure. Well, yeah, you know, and that was a little more of an incentive for me because I was always in a boat business, you know. So the more classics I made, the less I had to help set up the booth. <laughs> so it was, you know, that was another little added benefit for that. We enjoy having you there, but I've seen you set up a booth and you're there for the day. <laughs> We haven't seen you Tuesday through Thursday. I may be be better on the water than off the water. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But talking about, you just said you've been in the boat business. I mean, you've been doing this since the early to middle 80s. Oh, yeah. I started in 1984. I was 21 years old, and this guy hired me. He had just opened a a marina on Jordan Lake, which is a brand-new lake, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, I went to work for him, and, uh, you know, uh, then he sold, sold out to a bigger dealership that had multiple stores and I worked for them and uh in fact I was telling somebody the other day that I think the last year and I don't know how I did this and fished some uh I think the last year I was there I sold a hundred retail boats which is that's a, that's keeping pretty busy on that. oh absolutely and in those days you know in those days uh it's not like it is now when the boat came in it was a hull and a trailer and it didn't have depth finders it didn't have trolling motors all that stuff had to be mounted and you know it was a lot of a lot of labor-intensive stuff to get to get the boat out of door. There was a lot of plumbing and stuff that had to be done too. I mean, wiring. Oh yeah, that. I mean, in fact, uh, it was a while before gauges came. Mm-hmm. You know, standard on them. I I remember, I think the, at that time in '84, I want to say a a seventeen and a half foot Procraft with a one fifty 
retailed for eleven nine ninety five. Couldn't get a John book for that. Right and now. and Not I think a Stratus was about a thousand dollars more. It was twenty nine. It was twelve nine ninety five. If that gives you an idea mm-hmm. of where we're at, but you know, and a lot of people think that that boats have just gone up so much, but not really. You know, it was a cable steering boat, no fuel injection, a couple of flashers, single axle trailer. You know, that they, they, you just can't compare them to what we have today. Oh, you can't. And, and I think boats, I mean, everyone's like, oh, boats have gone up. It, you People used to be content with two eight-inch graphs. I mean, you were big time when That's you right. had a 10 and an eight. And no, we're not talking push button. I mean, it was a push button color, maybe had side image, but I mean, yeah. you at least had down image. Well, now it seems like if you don't have power poles, Ultrax, four graphs, uh, removable charge. I mean, all this, yeah. this, this and that, you, you're at 25000 before you get a boat to put on it. You yeah. had a motor and a trailer. I mean, it could be 50 thousand before you even have a boat to put all this stuff That's on. That's right. Hey, I came from paper grass. You know, that was that was the first, first grass we had. And you didn't turn it on unless you really wanted to see something because you had to buy paper <laughs> for, for the thing. And definitely didn't turn on when it was raining. That's exactly right. So, oh, man, that's crazy. Well, um, tell us about your first sales rep job. It was here in Middle Tennessee. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, actually, when I went to work for uh, the dealer, we became a venture dealer, which is right here in Winchester. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, in fact, uh, the first 17 and a half foot boat that I had was a venture uh, regatta mm-hmm. with a one I had to. One of the first XP one hundred and fifty Evan to come to come into North Carolina. In fact, I think the first few didn't even have oil injection at that time, and it was forty six hundred and twenty three dollars. Is that much? It, is that much it cost? But you know that was that was big time. That was a seventy plus mile an hour boat at the time too. So I mean, it was it was it was kind of groundbreaking at that time. Oh, it was hauling the mail. All in the mail. Um, and, and where'd you go from there? Give us a little bit of your backstory. Uh, went, you know, worked there, uh, got bought out, worked for those guys. And then I went to work for L&M uh, Turbo Propellers mm-hmm. out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Worked there, you know, traveling, you know, selling props uh, to dealers back in the day. And then I went to work for a friend of mine who kind of, he was the venture rep when I was a venture dealer. Uh, Mickey Fur, he he hired me to go to work for him. They had, uh, had uh, he had been working for Procraft, and Brunswick had just bought them, and we're starting this Mercury Powerboat Group, you know, Astro Glass Procraft. So that's when I kind of got over into the wholesale side of boat sales. And uh, so I've been in the boat side, and then you came on board with us in two thousand nine. Yes, but you know, uh, yeah, I was there fairly early, but you know, Gary and Gary. And Greg and Hank Baker, we were, uh, Hank Baker was my customer service guy when I was a Stratus dealer, mm-hmm. you know, back in, back in the eighties. That's, that's how long we go back. And, uh, I, you know, I worked for Gary basically indirectly at, at Triton mm-hmm. uh, before they left and went to Stratus over there. So we've got a lot of, a lot of miles between us on that stuff. I think that's so interesting how, how stories have intertwined over the years. I mean, you, you hear about when Gary talks about his time in uh, rigging boats at a dealership and Greg Strom, our engineer, was in a fiberglass shop back behind there. That's right. Then they're both in Nashville together. And then Gary was in customer service and Jeff Hartung, our sales director's parents, owned a dealership and, and Gary was their customer service right. rep. And then, I mean, Greg has come back around and, and uh, Jeff was customer service with Hank. I mean, just these stories that intertwine, it seems like people, and I've, I haven't been in the industry except for this job at Phoenix, but it seems like people don't really leave 
and then, and then there's this. Right, so, um, you know, it's, we're all pa- you know, it's in us. It's we're mm-hmm. passionate about it. I think that's so what it is. I, a passion I think about you probably it. don't feel like it's work nearly as much when, mm-hmm. when it's like that. But I tell you what, the now now the it's kind of similar though. Really, the way people are getting into it now, they're like you came up through the college fishing and kind of caught the bug. And a lot of those kids are now winding up in marketing at you know uh, Pratt and Co or, mm-hmm. or Berkeley or places like that. Uh, that's that's where the next generation of people in the industry are going to come from. It's the high school, college fishing, it looks like to me. Oh, absolutely. I think there can only be so many KVDs and Jeff Kobels that can do have success on that tournament trail. That I mean, if you want to have a passion and enjoy what you do, and I think you do follow your route here. I mean, yeah, I'm never going to walk across the classic stage, but I'm going to be at every single one. You know, yeah. And I get to be around it, and, and shoot, I love it. Oh, I, mean, yeah. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of people... Uh, I think a lot of those kids, some of them are not really, don't really, you know, it was just something to do during high school or college. They weren't really into it. But there's enough coming out of there that are passionate about it or, you know, even if, if they don't think they're going to be the next Kevin Van Dam, they might be the next Jeff Cobble on mm-hmm. selling boats or something like that. Well, talk about your experience, Brian. I mean, you were in the private sector, yeah. uh, not in the into the outdoor industry, and then you something led you here that, it did. I, I just uh, kind of happenstance, the blessing from God, whatever you want to call it. You know, I, I took a path coming out of college, a uh, CPA, accountant, little yeah, bean counter. That sounds really interesting. And it was so much fun, you know. <laughs> Please but, tell but us always, more. <laughs> <laughs> but I have always enjoyed it. Numbers always came natural to me. And, uh, you know, my dad, he jokes a lot that, you know, the only way I'd ever found something doing what I loved, which would be having a gun in my hand or doing something with fishing, was either go to work for TBI, FBI, or get into something like this. And, and honestly, um, it was just a pathway that must have been meant to be because Phoenix crossed paths with the local CPA firm I was working at at the time, um, got to know Teresa, and uh, came down and, and basically had like an 18-month job interview of, of starting to come down as a contract uh, accountant. And I think it took that whole 18 months for Gary to, to say hi to me one day. He was in and out all the time fishing. I didn't even know who he was forever, you know, because yeah. he was on the road uh, working sales gigs and then fishing. Um, but, but here we sit today and, and it goes back to that passion. I mean, like you said, it, it takes a job and makes it something you love to do. You know, I mean, everybody can, can find some way to get paid and feed their family, but you know, something that you look forward to getting up in the morning, getting here, getting the day going, seeing your teammates. And, and, um, and then at the end of the day, we get to see a lot of our customers come through and just see the excitement on their face when they see their product. Um, so there's a, a ton of different paths like you said, to intertwine your passion with your career, um, even even from the accounting standpoint, you know, the most boring part of the, <laughs> the whole <laughs> thing. Well, you've been in the, like uh, we've talked about in this industry forever. What's the biggest change from that 17-foot venture you had to now that's really kind of revolutionized bass boats as we know it? Well, you know, uh, obviously, it would. Have, I guess it's got to be the electronics and, and integrated systems that we have now because – Molding fiberglass really hadn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not been a uh, still nothing out there as far as an automated be able to speed the process up. It's still pretty much a labor intensive uh, as it was back in the 80s. You know, not, that's not changed a lot. So it would I, I would have to say it would have to be the electronics and trolling motors. I mean, who would have ever thought you would have a trolling motor where you mash a button and it'll hold you on the spot you know <laughs> that's great I, I i would like to have had some of the technology we have now about 20 years before anybody else knew what it was about <laughs> you would you would probably got accused of cheating in tournaments for a you while would have. i mean that was like uh i mean steve kennedy talks about and you know 
he is smarter than I mean, I mean the engineering yeah, background he comes from. Yeah. But I mean, he figured out a way to make a compact side image transducer before you had it bolted on the bottom of your boat. I mean, it was a tow behind, right. and, and he was finding stuff before people could. And I'm sure he wishes he held onto that and, and didn't let that out of the bag. Some too. Quick story about Steve Kennedy. Not so much as uh, Steve, but his in 1982, I believe, I qualified on the state team in North Carolina the Federation deal. They had a Southern Divisional. This is how you qualified to go to the Classic. And we went to Lake Oconee. It was a brand new lake then. Tons of little fish. Kind of hard mm-hmm. to catch, catch a keeper at that time. It's but, still tough to catch keepers out there. But uh, Van Kennedy, Steve's dad, was on the Georgia team. Well, he grew, you know, he was in, he hunted in the bottom of the lake before it was was filled. And he uh, he blistered everybody. I mean, he he was like sleeping in the boat at lunchtime because he didn't caught all he could catch, you know. And he, I mean, he went on to the Bassmasters Classic, you know. And I don't even know. If Steve was born at that time, I guess he was, but he had to be awful small then. So that's kind of interesting how a lot of those people like Steve came through his dad. You know? Right. He was uh, he was doing the eating pizza at the dock at noon before it was cool. That's exactly and right. And I don't know if that was true, but you know how boat yard, boat yard tales get mm-hmm. told, but I heard he was like taking a nap or something. <laughs> he, he could too because he was so far ahead. He, you know, he could just lay off of him. Hey, and I remember another story on that tournament. Uh uh, I, one of my idols at that time was a guy from Jackson, Tennessee named Billy Phillips. Mm-hmm. I mean, he fished two foot deep with a spinnerbait. He was the forerunner to Jimmy Houston and all those guys. And he was in the, he had been to the classic like three times through the Federation deal. And, uh, I was, I don't know, I guess I was 19 when I qualified for that thing or something like that. And he was who I dreamed of drawing. And, and it was, it was at Lake Oconee and, he shows up in this bumblebee center console, little seventeen footer, and actually, he after we were fishing, he would if he wanted to move, he would sit down in the front seat in front of the console, reach around and drive, put the boat in gear from behind him and steer it like that, just to jump around on flats and really? you know throw around one little stick up a spinnerbait around one little stick up. So that was pretty interesting that to draw him at that time when I was such a you know a young kid. So, out of all the uh, time and tournaments you've spent, um, what's some of the craziest things you've seen? Well, what, I mean, what's one of the funniest stories well, you've seen well, probably, unfold in front of you out there on the water? Probably, and I tell this story and it cracks people up because they really, it, it's, I, I don't know how we, it pulled, we, we pulled it off anyway, but at, at the lake I live in, there's a shoal over there near the dam uh, that every year has, that's where the fish school at on top. And I mean, it's everybody knows it. It's like a boat race to get there. We were fishing some kind of team tournament, and uh, I fished in practice. I went by the shoal just to see if there were any there. And they, you know, they were biting. I caught caught several, and they were right where the buoy was. And I thought, well, dang, you know, that's everybody's gonna find this. You know, it won't be any good. So I told David, I said, you know, I said I'm going to uh, I'm going to stay out real late today in practice. And I'm going to go over there and move that buoy. (laughs) Or try to move it anyway. So I waited and there were no boats on the lake. And I went over there and lassoed the buoy with a a rope and tied it to a deck cleat. And I don't know. I don't know how far I drug it. Probably, I don't know, 25, 30 yards, 100 feet, you know, something like that. And untied it. And uh, 
So the next morning, we were, t- and we were taking off within sight of it at the dam, you know, the, the launch where mm-hmm. we were at. And we could see them calling boat numbers. And there were boats going, making a beeline over there to that, to that shoal marker. So they called our boat number, and we come flying over there. And they're all over there around the buoy <laughs> <laughs> throwing. And we, we got between them and the buoy and threw the other way and just we put 12 in the boat so quick they didn't know what had happened. They thought that, they th- I don't think they know to the day that the, the, the fish didn't move, but the buoy did. <laughs> well, if they're listening with their other four or five listeners, they know now. <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna have a welcome home present when you get back to North Carolina. <laughs> Your mailbox ain't gonna be where you thought it was now. <laughs> it's gonna be back at Aruba Lane. <laughs> well, look, man, we really appreciate you coming and uh, spending some time with us. I know we gotta let you go here, but we'll definitely have you back on for our All American show uh, coming up this uh, this spring. Oh yeah, you know, it's in Lake Hartwell, there seems to be a lot of tournaments down there. Should be interesting. There'll be a lot of close catches. You know, they'll mm-hmm. it's it's it'll be a time when the fish are coming off the bed from spawning so that's a typical be uh, all-american pattern it's usually about that time of the year. well we're gonna have you on air uh, kind of on the ground boots on the ground and uh, give us a little play-by-play maybe we'll get a little live show going if we can figure this out by then that's right yeah that's before right. we let you go i'd like to uh ask you one question here i'll put you on the spot give us one angler to watch from each of the three major series that are going right now uh man on the i swear uh I don't think there's anybody out there better than Jacob Wheeler right now on the on the Bass Pro Tour or uh, MLF stuff. Obviously, the Johnston brothers, which one of them catches a big one, but you can't tell which one's going to be leading at the end of the day because they're pretty usually pretty within five or eight places of each other. Those guys on the elites. Uh, and I don't know, uh, Matt Becker, some of those new kids at FLW this year may be may show out over there this year all right we'll keep an eye out on them all and keep out for me on the wednesday nighters at tim's ford uh, right. as soon as duke jinkle leaves i will well, be yeah. leading it, it doesn't matter if we win those it's just a matter of coming in ahead of uh, jeff hartung yep. yeah yeah well there you have to set your realistic expectations mm-hmm. on that stuff. what's that supposed to mean <laughs> <laughs> hey i don't care if i'm in third place if there's three votes <laughs> that's right <laughs> well look we appreciate it and this is uh the we fish with phoenix boats podcast thank you guys for listening <laughs>